This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, the story of America, its president, and its founding. A very special polyoptics as we count down the days to the 236th birthday of the Union. Whether you celebrate on July 4th, as most do, or on July 2nd with the purists, the day the Continental Congress voted to declare independence from Great Britain. We'll be joined by Pulitzer Prize winner David Marinus, author of the new book, Barack Obama, The Story, and by Michael Quinn of the Museum of the American Revolution and Alexander Lammas of the renowned firm Robert A.M. Stern Architects to talk about the planned new building next to Independence Hall to help tell America's story. But first, we are joined by a very special guest co-host for this, our 62nd episode of Polyoptics, Nicole Wallace, author of 18 Acres, It's Classified, now out on paperback, and of course the well-known communications director to President George W. Bush and a senior advisor to the McCain-Palin campaign, a pivotal character in the book Game Change by Mark Halpern and John Heilman, made recently into a movie with Sarah Polson playing the role of my co-host today. Nicole, welcome to Polyoptics. I feel like I'm getting old when it takes that long to introduce me, but thank you for all those kind, <laughs> kind things you said. I could go on and on. How did Sarah Paulson study how to play you, and how do you feel about seeing yourself on film portrayed by her? Well, you know, I met Sarah Paulson for the first time at the New York premiere of HBO's Game Change, and um, I tried to sort of play it cool. I don't really know any celebrities or, or uh, television or film stars, but I told her actually the second time I met her that I was, you know, sort of wobbly in the knees at the prospect of meeting, you know, someone who I, I admire very much. I, I was a big fan of hers on uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, and um, and I've really enjoyed getting to know her since I, I first met her that night at the premiere. So how did it feel to go from a book in print read by largely insiders, people that you know, uh, in a format where Mark and John were largely protective of the people that were uh, provided information to make Game Change to then a major Hollywood movie in which uh, you and Scott Schmidt are sort of part of the effort to help promote the film, answering questions about the truthfulness of how it's portrayed on camera and therefore having having the role that Sarah played and the, the your role in history portrayed. It's a very uncomfortable thing. I think when you work as a political staffer, you're you're pretty hardwired to enjoy being a supporting member of a of a team that's much more important than anything you're doing. You are a, you were a White House staffer. I was a White House staffer, and in my entire political career, first for um, Jeb Bush, and and then for President Bush, and then for Senator McCain, I'd never um, become part of any news story ever. And so when Sarah Palin wrote her book um, about a year after the campaign and thrust me into the headlines when she went about promoting her book, it was the most traumatic professional experience of my life. Um, when she wrote about me to such a detailed degree in, in her book, Going Rogue, I, I didn't know what to make of it. I, I, I just couldn't believe that staff had become such a part of what she was bitter about. So when the HBO film came out, 
It was similarly uncomfortable in that it's so uncommon for staff to be part of the story, but I'd, I'd, I'd been broken in, if you will, um, through the process of Sarah Palin writing her book and, and drawing so much attention to her acrimonious relationships with staff. At the same time Sarah Palin is trying to write nonfiction, uh, you are engaged fully in a new career in fiction. At what point did, after the 2008 campaign concluded <laughs> well, <laughs> did you decide to, uh, to embark on 18 Acres and begin your trek as a book author as well? Look, working in politics, as you know, is always a privilege. You are not, as a staffer, the one with your um, you know, rear end on the line. That, that, that job and that burden falls squarely to the elected official or the candidate. And so um, I, I, I would never suggest that I'd, I'd endured any hardships, but I I'd, I'd felt like I'd paid my dues in the real world of politics. And I wanted to find some other perhaps more balanced way to live out my passion for politics and politicians and, and everything that goes with it and to and to spend time in, in that intense and majestic place, the, the West Wing of the White House, without having to actually work there. Um, so I created a fictional world and, and a fictional female president. That was another one of my fantasies. She's a moderate from Northern California, another one of my um, fantasies. Some political observers call that science fiction, but I, I hope it isn't. Um, so I created this female president who is far from perfect, but she's completely and utterly human, and um, she she still believes that she's doing the right thing by serving her country. Um, you know, e- even if everything doesn't doesn't come out perfectly pressed and and polished all the time, because I think that. I think we have this expectation of our politicians that's so uniquely American. We we want them to be faithful to their spouses. We want them to have perfect children. We want them to get everything right. And when they when they fall down, when they fall off their pedestals, our whole national psyche is so bruised. So I, I, I think, and, and you'd know much better than me, but I, I was a student of the Clinton presidency, and, and I find it so fascinating and such an interesting thing about this country that the week he was impeached, he maintained a personal approval rating of 67%, right. that it isn't what happens to presidents, it's how they handle it. And so the the two books and the, and the one I'm working on now, the third, they're all about, this is such a cliche, but, but they're about the humanity of the presidency and they're about the human beings, all their flaws and all their, all their warts and, and, and what makes them great isn't, isn't what, what, what you spend all your time talking about, what the image that's projected. Sometimes what, what makes them great is how they handle adversity. So the first book, uh, 18 Acres, talked about the first term of Charlotte Kramer. The second book, It's Classified, brought us through the, the second term. Where is the arc of the story headed in the third book? So the thing I struggle with most as, as a new writer, before I wrote these two novels, I'd never written anything longer than an email, um, is the passage of time. And as you know from being in the White House, more happens you know, before 10 a.m. in the White House than happens in, in a normal week just about everywhere else. So the third book is the story of one extraordinary day. It's a 24-hour day. It's, it's 24 hours in the life of the White House. And, and the White House is, is front and center as a character in, in the third book because it, it's a place that has its own limitations and its own frustrating um, 
lim limited access, limited technology. Um, and and it's also the place that I think is just a beacon of, of everything this country stands for, not just from coast to coast, but all over the world. So um, it's a story about the White House on a day of uh, a domestic terror attack in this country. And and I think with the 10-year anniversary of, of the horrible attacks on 9-11, I, I hope that maybe uh, putting some of this out there and, and, and trying to process what I experienced on that day as a, as a White House staffer is something that, that people can, you know, maybe maybe read in, in a fictional capacity and just understand how extraordinary the people are who work there. And I'm not talking about the presidents and the political appointees. I'm talking about the people who 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 make food all day long, right. even on a day like a terror attack. I, I remember on 9-11. Or manage tours. Or manage tours. Or or, you know, patrol the grounds or, you know, the, the White House, the 18 acre complex. And, and the book is called 18 Acres because it's extraordinary that, that it's 18 acres plopped right in the middle of Washington, D.C., where, where some of the most important decisions, where the most important decisions the world over happened. But on that day, I, I remember being struck by the fact that there was coffee in every meeting I went to. Uh, there were sandwiches, and I remember thinking, "That's the job of Navy I can stores. hardly get a call out, and 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 there are people downstairs cooking. You have they called their families? Have they been in touch with their loved ones? Do do they know that their kids are safe? And so it, it actually raises the hair on my arms, and 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 really moves me to think of all the people that make that place run, even on a day when when really all that so many people could do could could fathom doing was 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 being with their loved ones, making sure everyone was safe. And, and, and the White House is a place where so many people who are uncelebrated, unsung heroes, don't have the luxury of getting to do that until they finish um, doing, I think, what they see as their service to their country. So this week on the 18 Acres, uh, turning to what's happening this week, uh, probably the White House, if you read any of the news reports leading up to the Supreme Court decision, was girding for I don't know, Jay Carney to go out and make a statement in the press briefing room. You certainly wouldn't have expected uh, the president of the United States maybe to uh, open up the East Room to do a full walkout, fully lit, and a statement uh, after but the Supreme funny court. that they were ready for that, um, right? <laughs> you know so, that doesn't just happen. <laughs> it, it, you know, the, the court is probably more in the news now than any time since the Florida recount uh, in 2000. And you were in Florida then, the former press secretary to Governor Jeb Bush and the communications director for the Florida State Technology Office and worked on the recount. And back then, the Rehnquist court gave, uh, gave uh, they stopped the recount and handed the presidency to George W. Bush. What was it like to have your political fight upheld by the court in 2000? And what's your impression of this week's opinion of the 5-4 decision upholding the health care law, a political reversal of the majority compared to 12 years ago and the effect on history for Ro John Roberts and Barack Obama? Well, I think the consequences of the recount, and, now, and let me just give you the Republican take on what happened. They didn't hand the presidency to George <laughs> W. Bush. They simply stopped the counting because George Bush had won every recount that had taken place up to that point. So, so they didn't hand him the presidency. They simply stopped the counting. Um, but I think if 9-11 hadn't happened... Um, less than a year into George Bush's presidency, the hangover from the Supreme Court's role in deciding the outcome of that election would have been uh, much more serious. I think we would have talked about it for a lot longer. But um, one of the uh, consequences of that massive tragedy was that it sort of 
wiped away everything that had happened before it. It, it was truly a new and different time. And, and so I think it's, it's interesting to talk about the recount now and to just look at it through the lens of the role of the Supreme Court in modern politics, because we, we, didn't, we didn't talk about it as long as we might have had we not been thrust into you know, an historic, an historic time, um, you know, in the, in the months and years now after 9-11. But I think the what, what I'm so interested in asking David about um, today is Obama seems much better wired to complain about things not going his way than he is to gracefully accept a victory. And what happened today was not that the Supreme Court weighed in on whether the policy was a good idea or not. And I and I think the opportunity for Republicans is that Democrats are likely to overreach and say, this is the law of the land. That's not what happened today. What happened today is that the Supreme Court uh, decided that the law as passed by the Congress didn't violate our country's constitution. They did not say that it was a good idea. They did not say it was good policy. They simply said that the law as passed by Congress did not violate the Constitution. So I, 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 I have just, just two questions in my mind about what's going to happen in the next, what is it, 130 days. Is Obama going to be able to sort of accept the victory and stay positive and talk about how this, and, and really own it, wrap both arms around this wildly unpopular law and hug it up? Or is he going to find somebody new to blame? He can't blame the Supreme Court because Chief Justice Roberts, who I was honored to, to play a very small role in, in, um, in, in his confirmation process, um, he has now sided with the Democrats in saying that, that Barack Obama's health care plan, does, the mandate, doesn't violate our Constitution. So who is President Obama going to blame? It's an open question. So as you helped ready John Roberts for his confirmation, uh, what, what year was it? Wasn't that uh, 2005? Yeah. Does the voice that came through in the opinion today or just the fact that he sided uh, with the Democrats on this issue surprise you? What What was the man, what was it like when you when Roberts first walked into your office and said, uh, uh, and said, I've got to get ready for my Senate confirmation? <laughs> well, it didn't take ways in my office, but, um, but, but when he was in the West Wing and, and, and we all worked with him, he is somebody very, very, very special. And um, unlike other, um, I was honored to work for the, the unsuccessful nomination process for Harriet Myers, who we nominated and she didn't, didn't, wasn't well received and didn't make it. But um, it's always a privilege to work on behalf of these nominees. And, and, um, and Justice Roberts is just extraordinary. He's special. And I'm sure you had people that you met in your time in the White House that are just special. And um, I, I would put... Um, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, who was a, a White House senior staffer during my years, and he's now a federal judge. I mean, they're just there are a handful of people that you, um, you know, share oxygen with when you work in the White House that you can just tell you're in the presence of people who are really extraordinary. And I don't think today's decision is is um, it, it, it excludes him from being someone who the right will be proud of for his entire term. You know, it's a life term. I think he's someone that will will make. President George W. Bush proud, um, watching him serve out his his entire term there. And I think that the fact that he's unpredictable is part of what makes him great. We have another writer joining us on Polyoptics this week, a great writer. A truly great writer. And it's one thing to sit down and make up stories like I do, but quite another to devote four years of one's life to reconstructing in such vivid and exquisite detail 
the years of a young man born in Hawaii who spent parts of his life before arriving in Chicago in Jakarta, Honolulu, Los Angeles, New York, and Boston. And when that young man turns out to be our current president of the United States of America, writing that biography probably becomes all the more challenging. Nicole, we're talking, of course, about David Marinus, author of just-released Barack Obama, The Story, as well as the authoritative examinations of the life of people like my old boss, Bill Clinton, Vince Lombardi, Roberto Clemente, an amazing account of the Vietnam War in They Marched Into Sunlight, uh, and of course, uh, and his book on the 1960 Olympics. Marinus is the uh, associate editor of the Washington Post and joins us today from Washington. David, welcome to Polyoptics. I'm happy to be here. A lot of times, your book's titles have very descriptive uh, and flowing subtitles, so you know really what you're going to read. Uh, this book is simply called Barack Obama, The Story. Why so simple this time? Well, to be honest, we went through quite a few different possible subtitles before we settled on that one. And most of the other subtitles seemed to be too, they were descriptive, but they were too narrowing in a sense. And so finally, uh, the publisher at uh, Simon & Schuster, John Thinkarp, said, well, David, you've just told a great story. Let's just call it Barack Obama, The Story. So that's how it happened. It was no more complicated than that. Now, you know, if, if anyone were to sit down and reconstruct uh, the life of Nicole Wallace or Josh King in the same kind of detail that you did from Kansas to Kenya, uh, you might be incredibly appreciative of, of the four years of work that it went to put into this. I wonder if you've heard from President Obama at all since the book has been put into print. You know, I'd love to hear, hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> well, uh, he has a copy. I've heard that he's reading it. Um, he's already read the introduction because I gave that to him a long time ago before I interviewed him. I wanted, I don't, I don't try to surprise people, so I wanted him to know basically all the places I'd gone and the conclusions I'd reached. So he had a sense even before the book came out of, of the parameters of it, um, and you know whether he's had time to re actually read it or not, I don't know, but I presume that since he is a writer, I know he'd read a few other of my earlier books and. I expect that he's reading it. I expect that he's reading it, too. Presidents. <laughs> you know, I should add, by <laughs> the way. Presidents can't resist their own press. No, no Josh, let them. me tell you one funny story about Bill Clinton. He, after that book came out, he, first he said he, didn't re he hadn't read it, and then uh, and Nicole will get a kick out of this. So then when the Star Report came out, Kenneth Starr's report, it listed all of the books in the presidential uh, Oval Office library, and it said, first in his class, with notes, with annotated notes by HC, HRC and BC. <laughs> so That's they awesome. Bo they both had read it. I was going to ask you, how much of your book do you think President Obama would like? What ratio well, would you give this uh, one? Well, you know, I think that uh, I know the problem that he had initially the most trouble with were aspects where what I found to be uh, the facts differed from what he'd presented in his memoir. So we, we talked about that during my interview with him. And he started by saying, David, I really like your introduction, but you call my book fiction. And I I looked over at Jay Carney, the press secretary, and he was scrambling around reading my introduction, which I don't call it fiction. I said, actually, Mr. President, I complimented you. I called it literature. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, Flattery will get you everywhere <laughs> with the president. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he, he he's a writer, and he considers himself a writer. And um, we went through many of those instances and he was slightly defensive, but not overly so, and essentially acknowledged that I was probably right in every instance. What do you think that people don't know about him 
that they, that they should to understand. I mean, I found his response today to the Supreme Court decision, which was a completely unexpected victory, to, uh-huh. to almost disorient him. He seems like someone who's so much more comfortable. Um, you know, he, he was more comfortable overtaking Hillary Clinton in some ways than he was once he was the nominee. He was more comfortable <laughs> railing against the Republican Congress than he is when he gets his way and something actually passes. He seemed like he was really fixing for a fight over health care to be the victim of a Supreme well, Court think- that was political yeah, yeah he probably, How is that, what, what does he think on a day like today well first of all he probably put a lot more effort into uh this the you know, speech of losing than the one of winning uh, absolutely i'm sure and, he wrote seven drafts and, i'm sure he was and <laughs> he he um he prides himself in being cool in a in a crisis situation which it would have been had he, he had the supreme court gone the other way and he also is an inherently sort of cocky guy so he has to control when he wins he has to control that sort of you know, ha ha, I beat you attitude, which he he has in golf and in poker and in basketball and everything else. You know, he's kind of got that jock mentality when he wins. So I'm sure he had to control that somewhat today. I I didn't have the chance to watch his speech, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, he, like many um, successful politicians, tends to rise to the, I mean, Clinton was like that also. He was, when you know, when he was down, he'd always figure his way back up. But when he was on top, he'd, he'd screw up and you know, have to deal with it again. So for many politicians like that, it's actually easier to, to be defeated and come back than to be on top. What, what about him will make this campaign harder? Well, um, first of all, the same things that made his presidency uh, uneven. Um, you know, he's not a natural politician. He, he was... He, he learned how to be a great orator, largely by studying the preachers on the south side of Chicago. He's, a, he's more inherently sort of a, a, you know, a constitutional law professor who explains every different angle of everything, so it, sometimes it's hard for him to speak in, in the modern uh, clarifying sound bites. Um, so that, that was, you know, has been a problem with his presidency uh, to some degree and, and will be with the campaign, but I... But after studying him, um, there are often points in his life and in his presidency and in the earlier campaign where he seemed a little bit off, a little bit out of the zeitgeist. What is he doing? Why isn't he really you know, clarifying everything and being strong? And then he does something, and everybody's perception changes. So I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, if he, if, if he figures it out and, and, and hits a stride at some point in the next three months. Obama is incredibly competitive, has that will that, that, that will, you know, whether he wins or not, he's, he, this is, you know, he knows this is the campaign of his life. When I think about uh, Barack Obama, the story, and how it weaves, it tells the story from Kansas and Kenya uh, to Chicago, and certainly with the, the period, not when he was on the basketball court in Honolulu, but as a member of the Chum Gang, yes. uh, and his time in New York as the moviegoer. Uh, you know, campaigns spend a lot of time and a lot of money on opposi- opposition research to create the same kind of narrative that comes out in the story. And, you know, I, of course, as you, you've said in many interviews, that Barack Obama has been, was candid in, in his own book about his use of marijuana, but maybe not quite to the extent uh, that, that you've chronicled. Um, so, if this was 2008, uh, and that and some of your reporting, your 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 long form pieces for the Post had detailed this in such in such detail, uh, do you think Obama would have had the same election result? 
um, a question that I can't answer. Um, mm-hmm. I I really, I, I, you know, I think overall people can read the entire book and and draw different conclusions about about him. It's not in any way a hatchet job on him, right. nor is it hagiography. Right. I think it's the, you know it's as close as I can get to the real story. Um, and I think- so I think it's open to different interpretations in that sense, but certainly. Um, you know, in this modern American political culture, people cherry pick uh, things from from a book and try to pound away at somebody with them. I mean, that's that's what opposition research is. And and to the Republicans, uh, uh, I mean, for some reason, you know, a, a segment of the uh, of the people who intensely dislike Obama decided to to focus on fantasies. You know, the birther movement and the the whole notion that he wasn't smart enough to get into Columbia or Harvard, and and that he's a secret Muslim—they went off on all these sidetracks that that you know did not help in any way. But I, I wonder, as the writer, what is it like for you? You've you've really written this incredibly comprehensive and detailed and exquisitely reported uh, uh, book. So, if, if if you think that that the Republicans, his opponents, are going to pick things out of there and, and repurpose them for the purposes of this campaign season. Y- y- you know, I know just from writing two novels, when, mm-hmm. when, you, when you see one little one little characterization uh, blown up in the headlines and taken out of context, it's very jarring and, and disorienting when you put all these pages together and it's one little piece. Yep. How Do you, you, do you have a plan for the next uh, three, four months? How well, you deal with it? Do um, people I, quote you? I anticipated it, Nicole. And even in my introduction, I write about um, these strange armies of pseudo-historians roaming the the biographical fields looking for stray ammunition. And, you know, so I, I knew it was coming. <laughs> um, and I, it, it, to be um, honest about it, I almost didn't write the book because I was thinking about that so much. And did I want to get back into that, the maw of the, what I consider to be a somewhat sick modern political culture. Yep. Um, so um, I, I'm not naive about it. I understand the, you know, I'm not great at the, the whole social whatever networking, but, but I understand all of it. And I understand, you know, you, that people are trying to get hits and, and that the tweeting is both good and bad and it can be an ugly bathroom wall type of situation and that, the, that people who hate Obama will find things in this book that they can use as ammunition. But I, in the end, I couldn't let that stop me. I mean, I still have to try to do what I do, which is, Try to find the real story. In Lombardi, David, you, you bring us back to Harry Lombardi's meat shop in Brooklyn. Uh, in First in His Class, you bring us to Hope and Hot Springs. Um, in Roberto Clemente, you bring us uh, to Puerto Rico. And in Rome, 1960, you bring us to the Olympics. And in this book, you you know you have so many different geographic spots to paint a, a, yes. a vivid picture of. It seems like you're having a hell of a lot of fun uh, <laughs> going to Kenya and going to Kansas and going to Honolulu and Occidental and, and New York and bringing us back to the 60s and 70s and even the 20s uh, in Kansas. Just divorcing from the actual narrative of the Barack Obama, the story, as a writer, is this one of the funnest parts of, of being a biographer? Absolutely. It's what I love. It's when I feel that I'm sort of, you know, I love cultural geography, and I think it explains a lot about all of us. And when I'm in the places and sort of walking in the footsteps and exploring things that I've never never would see any other way. And it's sort of the best way of being a, a tourist is to go someplace where you have a mission to find things out and you go 
into alleyways and into corners of countries that you would never visit otherwise. And you see the connection between history and the modern day. I mean, I love that. You know, for the Lombardi book, uh, I mean, the joke is, and it's true, I had to turn to my wife right after the 1996 uh, Clinton's re-election. The day after, I turned to her and said, uh, how would you like to move to Green Bay for the winter? Uh, you know, immortal <laughs> loving words. But we went. And you have a it good ma- wife. <laughs> I do. We've been married 43 years. And and, um, uh, and it was a wonderful experience in its own odd way. And and so going to Western Kenya out by Lake Victoria and walking the alleyways of the Menteng Dalam neighborhood in, in Jakarta where young Barry Satoro, that was his stepfather's name, at age seven was just sort of thrown in and immersed into this this uh, alien uh, culture, learn, having to speak the language. You know, he wasn't like a diplomat's kid going to the international school and being surrounded by that Western bubble. He had to just sink or swim in a Jakarta neighborhood. And to, to be there and be, you hear the sounds of the street vendors and the smells and and just see the kids running around, it really... You know, that, that brings a sensibility to what I write that, that is probably deeper than the words themselves. You know more about him than, than obviously, than, than we do. But by any objective standard, he's a pretty exceptional human being. Take aside his political ideology. Why do you think he bugs Republicans so much? You tell me, Nicole. I, I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I dealt with that with Bill Clinton. And with Clinton, I came to certain conclusions that that what bothered them about Bill Clinton was that uh, that he was he was sort of co-opting some of their stuff. You know, I mean, he could speak, speak the scripture better than many of them right. could, and they didn't like that. You know, because they thought he was a phony about it. Um, I always called Bill Clinton the best authentic phony I've ever met. Because, well, look, my my two but, bosses in politics are friends with Bill Clinton, so I, I yes. sort of miss the, the 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 period in which <laughs> my party didn't like him. I mean, George W. Bush and forty one, they get along great with the guy. They they all get along like yeah, peas and carrots. So, I know. But what is it? Cause, but, cause, but but what I was going to say is that so going back to nineteen seventy four when Clinton was was running for Congress up in Northwest Arkansas, there was about thirty percent of the populace that really hated him. But that was the era before um, the internet, and so you know when I started reporting on him in '92, I'd get fax, you know, faxes of negative opposition research, and it's only exponentially. I think I sent some of those. <laughs> <laughs> Probably so, and uh, Tyson Chicken and all the things up there. But um, anyway, it, you know, the the technology has changed. Uh, the, everything about politics has changed since then, and then you have the added dimensions of. I mean, I don't know what amount of factor race is, but I, I, you know, it'd be naive to think that it doesn't play some part with some of the people that hate him. Um, and, you know, just sort of, uh, I think fear is part of it, Nicole, uh, that people are afraid of the demographic changes that are taking place in the country and the world. And so Obama sort of represents that. I think that, I think that people that love him and hate him equally sort of project things into him that aren't really him. I sat on stage with Mike McCurry once in, uh, during the primaries, and he described uh, Obama, then Senator Obama, as an empty vessel. And um, and you, you know, I think even even now, people yeah. still project onto him and yes. fill him up with um, things that that either he has no interest in being to them, right, or um, things that have nothing to do with. I, I mean, I think they're entirely legitimate 
and fair reasons for Republicans and conservatives to disapprove of the direction he's taken the country. Oh, from I agree completely with policy that. Policy perspective. Wise, yeah, but sure. he's obviously an intelligent and accomplished man who, um, who you know, has a, a beautiful family and a brilliant wife. And, you know, there's nothing personal about him that, that you know, at least with Bill Clinton, he, he I mean, there were interns, there was yep. stuff. I mean, Obama doesn't have any stuff. And so I, I think maybe it's what well, you said. Well, that must frustrate that, them. That maybe. <laughs> or, or the cockiness. I yeah. mean, I think that that's something that that um, sometimes rubs people wrong from their leaders that we've sort of lost on both sides the humility of, um, of public service. I mean, it's just the times that are different. It requires, um, you know, I don't know, maybe someone a, a, a little more uh, with a bigger ego. But I, I just wonder if you uncovered anything that, that, you know, made you think, oh, this is why everyone, you know. No, this is- I, I, I certainly haven't. And I think a lot of it is, cultural and doesn't really have that much to do with him and some has to do with with uh, his I mean but the characteristics that he carries with him I mean yes he's cool um, he's not really aloof but it appears that way because he doesn't need people certainly not the way Josh's guy needed people yeah um, and so you know he's not as good at transactional politics but does that explain why people hate him no and I really don't know the answer to that question Nicole and I don't know that people hate him uh, as much as as they hated Clinton, uh, and and I think well, and I mean, I think, d- does anyone hate either of them as much as the left hated my boss George W. Bush? Well, see, there there you're getting to the larger point, which is that there's just a lot of venom in the country right now, and I and think that's uh, a sad truth. Uh, yeah, and that's uh, going back to why I almost didn't write this book. I mean, it's a lot more pleasant for me to write about Vince Lombardi or Roberto well, Clemente. Well, well, that's right. And, and then, you know, and then Lombardi turns into a wonderful stage show uh, with Dan Loria. And I think that uh, They Marched Into Sunlight is getting made into a movie next year. And I, I, I even was reading the um, Tad Friend profile of Ben Stiller in uh, New Yorker last week, and I couldn't resist the thought that maybe Tropic Thunder was, was sort of a comedy based on They Marched Into Sunlight. <laughs> Well, uh, it also became a modern dance, which was my favorite. You know, to see your work uh, transformed into these different art forms is really thrilling and uh, and fun. And uh, it's kind of like having grandchildren. You have, you know, you have no responsibility, all joy, but they couldn't exist without you. Well, I mean, to that to that question about whether you actually go about writing this book, and and I think in some of the interviews it, it didn't occur to me originally, but now that you've ended up the story in Chicago, there's still so much more of the life to tell. Yes. My and and so you've said, you know, you don't want to be Robert Caro uh, and spend your life doing this, but then my quick thought was, um, you know, beside John Harris's book, The Survivor, uh, you know, there hasn't been a huge book that would pick up on where Furstin's class ended off and whether, you know, the, the rest of the life of Bill Clinton is worth a David Moranis uh, effort. Well, it might be. I've, I've often thought about that. Um, but it took me 10 years to recover from... <laughs> I mean, you're, you know, Bill Clinton is a fascinating, uh, unique, uh, exhausting person to deal with. And so, Everybody says that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, I, I, there's plenty of, you know, of more. I mean, he's endlessly fascinating to me, and I might come back to him someday. Um, it, to the point of, of tackling this issue in the middle of the campaign, you know, I was, um, uh, you've long been associated with the Washington Post. You are the, its associate editor. Uh, 
Um, it w- that is the newspaper that uh, earns its legacy and love by its coverage of, of Watergate. In May, uh, one of the reporters there, Jason Horowitz, wrote a long-form piece in sort of a classic post style about Mitt Romney and his days in prep school. And you'd think that that would really sort of define a Mitt Romney character for the rest of the campaign. And yet that was six weeks ago and and innumerable news cycles ago. And now sort of it's it's long in the past and maybe forgotten. And given the effort that you put into this book, uh, uh, what's the future of a revered newspaper trying to do things the way they've done it, uh, the way you covered Clinton in 92, and the process of biography in the age of Twitter? Um, well, I think that uh, I think there's room for everything. And, you know, I mean, people are still reading books, thank God, uh, thank right, God. Nicole? And, um, yes, thank God. Uh, and, and they're also, I mean, I'm even on Twitter. My son got me on it. And... You know, sometimes I blanch at what goes on there, but, but you know, it's just another form. And, and on days like today, Twitter's incredibly valuable. I mean, it's like where everybody got their news today. Um, so, uh, and long form, I remember I wrote a, when I wrote a piece of, a long piece about Barack Obama, actually, in 2008, uh, before the convention, and and some of the new form journalists were, were remarking on this sort of anachronistic uh, thing that I had done you know, by writing 10,000 words on, uh, on a candidate. But, um, you know, Jason Horowitz's piece got more readership than any story in the Washington Post ex- since uh, the day that bin Laden was killed. Mm. So people do read that stuff. And then, you know, if it weren't for, for work like that or, or, you know, in-depth reporting, what would all the Twitterers have to tweet, you know? I mean, somebody's got to do the real reporting. I I agree with you, but I think we're already off to a cycle where the Romney campaign has a very difficult relationship with the Washington Post, and I wonder if you see any hope for um, that being resolved or this being a cycle where um, where both sides feel like that's the case at at, at the Post. Um, I mean, the Obama uh, White House uh, called us in uh, and complained several times already. So I know, and you, by, you know, by your standards, if both yeah. sides are angry, you're doing the, something right, yeah, right? Yeah, well, you know, maybe. Um, I like to think that. I mean, sometimes, I mean, journalists aren't perfect either. And so, you know, that give and take is necessary. And it is, um, you know, uh, that's a, a, a part of, con- of, not confrontation, but part of the yeast of, of what, uh, the press and politicians should be about. I mean, on the one hand, you want a baseline of respect. But on the other hand, there has to be some tension there for everybody to do their jobs right. Well, David, thank you so much for stopping by, sharing a few thoughts about uh, Barack Obama, the story, delving back into the the age of Bill Clinton and bringing both Nicole Wallace and me on a, a wonderful trip through American politics and a little bit of American sports as well. I Congratulations enjoyed. on the book. Thank you. It was great to talk to both of you. And now, The Birth of a Nation. A few weeks ago in Philadelphia, the Museum of the American Revolution unveiled the design for its new home, Steps from Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell. A $150 million campaign is underway to build the museum to tell the story of the nation's founding following a design by the legendary Robert A.M. Stern. Nicole, those who read my 10-part series, The Story of Polyoptics, know that places like Lexington and Concord and Valley Forge really form the basis of polyoptics. A 10-year-old walking the Freedom Trail in Boston, 
who then goes home to study the lithographs of Paul Revere depicting the death of Crispus Attucks, is bound to have a lifetime love affair with American history. My brother, Rick, enjoyed the same kind of upbringing and joins us in the studio as well to talk about one of our favorite subjects, the interpretation of history in American museums. And we're joined by Michael Quinn, President and CEO of the American Revolution Center, and Alexander Lamas of Robert A.M. Stern Architects. Among other things, Mr. Lamas is working on the Presidential Center for my former boss, President George W. Bush, 43, at SMU. Gentlemen, welcome to Polyoptics. Congratulations on the exciting announcement and the road ahead for the museum. Thank you very much. Thank it's you. a pleasure to be here. If the Freedom Trail and the Bunker Hill Pavilion helped teach Rick and Josh about the American Revolution around the time of the Bicentennial, how did today's generation of young people, distracted as they are by video games and Twitter and whatnot, get exposed to that history and learn its lessons? Well, we're actually finding that, sadly, they are not getting exposed to history. They have a few snippets of it, you know, Paul, v Paul Revere's ride, uh, the Declaration of Independence, Bunker Hill, but they have no concept of the courage and the resolve or even the ideas of our, our nation's founding generation. So the purpose of this museum is to create a, a single place where that whole story is told. Do you think that's because even if you walk by the Liberty Bell and you Google, what the heck is that? You, you, you know, that's all we're doing now. We're, identi we're identifying things, but no one is stopping long enough. We've got, an, we're an ADD nation. No one stops long enough to read about why it's there. I, I think you put your finger on it. I mean, everything is taken out of context. It's explained in a caption under a picture, and it loses its real meaning. I mean, the important thing is that our nation was really founded on, on the idea of a nation, the idea of equality, liberty, self-governance. And these are abstract ideas. They have to be taught, and they simply cannot be taught through one-liners. This museum will really pull together, really for the, own, for the first time in the nation, uh, a place to tell the whole story of the revolution. One of our challenges is if you think about the different wars that have been fought, um, World War II, uh, we have a lot of movies and video and things that people can relate to um, for that war. Even the Civil War going back, we have photography. We have Matthew Brady's photographs, and that personalizes and makes it more alive. With the Revolution, there is no photography. There, there are paintings. And um, so one of the things and one of our challenges is going to be to make these people come alive uh, for um, using today's technology and using kind of graphic techniques and things that will... Um, can, you, can you tell us more about how you'll do that? Um, we are planning uh, exhibits, venues, and, and uh, theaters in this that will be very immersive. Uh, you will really have the learn what it, what it feels like to be lined up by a drill sergeant and face a, a brigade of British soldiers charging with their bayonets fixed. You'll hear the gun gunfire. Uh, you will understand what it's like to be on board a naval ship, uh, and you'll really get a sense of the courage and sacrifice and commitment of these people, even the women who were essentially running the home front because the men were at war. Uh, how will they feel that way? I mean, Alex, I know you were involved way back in uh, designing some of the Disney uh, uh, hotels. Is, are there aspects of Disney that you're going to inject into the museum here to make people really experience what it's like? Well, we have to be a, a little careful. We're not doing a, a disney version of American history. Nonetheless, Disney uh, has been very, very good at um, telling uh, stories in a way that is compelling. 
and and uh, you know the whole idea of of movies of traditional uh, 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 tales uh, is something that we would uh, we would look at. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that we have working in our benefit is that um, the personalities and the stories uh, are incredible in themselves. I mean, a, mm -hmm. a person like George Washington, uh, if he lived today, would just be a, a superstar. And I think that by, by making him uh, uh, alive and, and up to date, um, uh, it, the story will kind of tell itself. And uh, the kind of changes that took place over a short period of time um, were incredible. Um, Don't you think adults need to be reminded of that as much as children, though? How do you, how do you create a place in our incredibly, um, you know, kind of divided media, divided experiences that we have now. You talked about Disney. Kids go to Disneyland and adults, I don't know where they're getting their, their reminders of history. How do you create a place that is uh, inspirational and educational for kids and brings adults back to that place where they're, they're still adding to their learning curve? You, you've, that's, that's really part of the challenge. And um, it is possible, however, to create music, museum exhibits that operate at several levels, that have that oh wow factor using modern technology, and at the same time provide the content or an entree to the content that would satisfy the most inquisitive adult who was part of the audience. And we do intend to serve both. You know, really one of our, our missions, I in addition to engaging visitors who come, is to leave them wanting to learn more. Right. And we will provide many directions online, in print, books, uh, where they can learn more, other sites to visit. Do you think this is one of our biggest gaps in our not, you know, I feel, I lived in Tallahassee, and I know we're here in New York today, and everyone here in the Northeast mocks people who reenact the Civil War, but it, 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 even as a specter, it does increase your uh, your ability to understand where these battles took place, and if you, we've lived in D.C., it's interesting to... How you sleep, how you eat, right. how you live back in those times. <laughs> right. No. I mean, is this one of the biggest gaps or a gaping hole, if you will, in our knowledge I, of our country's history? I, I think it is a gaping hole. Um, you know, a lot, our, our public education, the whole impetus behind, behind public education over a century ago is that what we're really doing is we're educating citizens. And it was understood at the founding that our form of democracy really does, since we're making the average person sovereign, it does require an individual, a citizen, who understands the concepts and shares that understanding in the votes they cast and how they communicate with their elected representative. And if you don't understand that, the whole system can start coming apart. Well, I also think it's as simple as knowing where you live today. For example, we're here in New York, and one of the neighborhoods uptown is Fort Washington, and across uh, on the other side of the Palisades is Fort Lee. And I would venture to say that more than half the people who live in Fort Washington and Fort Lee do not realize that those were actually two forts um, uh, during the revolution that George Washington set up as he was leaving uh, New York to try to uh, stop British shipping from coming up the Hudson River. So um, it's, it's not just history. It's really relevant to um, the way people, the, the way, you know, our, our whole geography is set up and, and um, not, and culturally as well. And also right across the river, a pretty famous duel was fought, I think, once upon a time by our leading politicians. And I don't think they solve problems that way th <laughs> these days. But, but what that gets to is that's a pretty cool story. How do you guys choose which stories you're going to tell? You know, that's, that's the tough part because a museum experience um, 
is limited. I mean, who wants to spend eight hours in a museum? That's just not going to happen. So you do have to make very hard choices, and there's a lot to cover. Um, we will be including the touchstone events, some that you mentioned, Paul, like um, you know Bunker Hill, um, uh, the, the Declaration of Independence. But we'll put them in context so people will understand where this happened in the chronology of the war and just come away with an understanding that the Revolutionary War was one of the longest wars in our history. It lasted eight years. That the casualty rate was phenomenal. It was second only to the Civil War. There wasn't a family in this country that wasn't personally affected. And what really, what really motivated it wasn't necessarily this heavy, oppressive land uh, hand of the British king. It really was a desire to form a new society, to have the opportunity to just discard accepted practices of monarchy and aristocracy and create a new form of governance based on equality. And that's part of the story that needs to be told, too. But it's also a story of a very violent time in our history. It was years and years of war, and we remain a country at war now in faraway lands. How do you tie sort of the, the current, you know, a, a museum is only trafficked if it taps into something mm -hmm. that, that not just our appetite and desire to understand where we come came from, but our our, our, our appetite to understand how we are as a country at war. How, what, how, what's well, the well, relevance to Mike's to this point, moment? I don't think people quite realize that, you know, New York was burned right. in the revolution. You know, there were, Philadelphia had huge fires. Boston was really... Um, it, was not, it was occupied. Occupied. Blockaded, blockaded and occupied. So, I mean, there, there was really serious business going on. Um, and we will tell those stories. I, I wanted to get back to one other point. Um, since, it's, since it's so important to uh, tell the story in a kind of um, um, uh, strong way, uh, you know, we have reached out uh, over a long period of time to, to scholars of various persuasions. Um, David McCullough has been a, a big supporter of this project for a long period of time. Uh, and continues and to be continues so. To support, yeah. uh, so um, uh, you know, there's uh, we're really relying on the intellectual um, uh, content of of the, the people who know the field best as we put these exhibits together. But you did give a sense just now that you're you're interested in telling the story of what it was like to be living then in maybe a way that wasn't the focus of historians. 10, 20, 30 years ago. Is is that is that one thing that sets apart your vision now <clears throat> versus what? one might have seen decades ago? Well, um, I, I, you, know, you know, quite honestly, the whole state of museum design and, and conception has just gone through a transformation in the last 30 years. Tell us about that. Well, if, if we were designing this museum 30 years ago, we probably would be planning um, airtight, bulletproof cases behind w which we put swords and guns and canteens and horns. You know, that's, you don't hear us talking about that. We have those objects. We have incredibly important, valuable objects. The tent that George Washington lived in for the last six years of the war. Uh, powder horns carved by, by the, the militia. The gun held in the hand of the uh, Minuteman commander uh, on the North Bridge at Concord. Um, but, we in, but we're going to show those objects, but we really want to make the story behind it come alive. And I think this goes to Nicole's point of how do you make people connect with it? I think one way to connect is realizing this was real people doing it. They did not know the outcome. They didn't know if they would succeed or fail. 
and yet they still made the decision that this was the right course of action. And I think that's something that we can get people to relate with. Do you, do you think, uh, you've talked about George Washington, you both have. Do you think there's, there's anyone on our political stage that has that kind of character and courage and strength? It's a different time, obviously, so uh, people have The challenges are so similar from what you well, guys have been well, talking the, the, about. The, the incredible, I mean, the, the, there are two things you have to acknowledge in Washington, the incredible perseverance. I mean, eight years, he lost more battles than he won. He never gave up. And finally, at the end... And now we have, you know, we see politicians, you know, drop out of Congress or at a, at a state and local level. You know, someone says something mean on them on, on the Facebook, and they're out of there. Well, so, yeah. you know, what do you think has happened to the moral fiber of our leaders? Is it, you know, I mean, I feel like I'm going to go to this museum and be depressed that, that, that you know, we <laughs> were so we hope, great. We hope, we hope you we are. so, so that... great. And, no, no, you know, no. what, 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 I mean, because people who make museums are not, I don't, the stereotype that you're, you know, live in the past. You, you care more about the future. That's why you're creating this place. Exactly. So, well, my, my hope is that people will look at this generation, look at Washington, and they'll be inspired to emulate them. I mean, yes, we may feel like that we, we, we suffer by comparison, but instead of giving up, the point is, is this is our heritage and our legacy. And this is what we should aspire to. We just for. don't know it anymore because we we're all too busy there you on go. Twitter. We don't know it anymore. <laughs> and, and it's and it's not just Washington. It's it's soldiers in the field. Like right. there there was a guy Joseph Plum Martin who kept a diary through the entire revolution of what it was really like to evacuate New York and what the conditions were. And they were very very tough, very serious. And I do think that. Um, a teenager, uh, you know, who is the same age as some of these revolutionary soldiers is is going to kind of hear about this and look at it and say, wow, I mean, these people did a lot. I mean, George Washington went alone on horseback when he was 15 years old to um, the far reaches of Virginia to, to survey. And, you know, uh, we should know that. Michael, Alex, uh, as we wrap up our conversation, uh, as we head into the July 4th uh, holiday uh, weekend next week. Um, can you share with our listeners, as we conclude, uh, some of the business challenges that have faced the Museum of the American Revolution as it has got to this celebratory point with uh, Robert Stern's uh, uh, design for the museum, working with Alex? Um, you know, when I was working in the Clinton administration, one of the first issues that seemed to bubble up from the Washington Post was Michael Eisner's effort to create a Disney's America near the Manassas battlefield. And that died a quick death uh, and yet, um, still, there's enormous development and commercialization around Manassas. So maybe a, 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 a theme park that tried to celebrate American history wouldn't have been that bad an addition mm -hmm. to that development area. You guys were originally going to put this museum in the Valley Forge area as an addendum to the experience of visiting uh, the Valley Forge uh, uh, place where park. Yeah. Yeah, park. Right. So now you're back in downtown Philly next to Independence Hall. What brought you here? And what do people who might have liked to have it out in Valley Forge, how should they think of the museum now being in Philadelphia? Well, well two, th two things really pulled it um, to, to downtown Philadelphia. First is the realization that that is where people are. You know, there are over two million people a year who go to Philadelphia to stand in the presence of, of the Liberty Bell. They're there to connect and to learn. So why not put the museum there? And secondly was, I think, the very legitimate concern that the real goal of the, of the Valley Forge Park is to preserve the environment of the encampment. And it's how do you reconcile that with building a meaningful and thus fairly sizable museum to communicate the story? 
Um, Stern's firm, Alex's firm, came up with a design that was just brilliant, fit in the, that landscape beautifully. But ultimately, we decided that this should be where people are, that it will um, respond to the interest of those coming, and it'll successfully draw more. But the business side is that we're a nonprofit, uh, and we will only succeed in this if we are able to raise the money to make it happen. We have received a grant of $40 million. It must be matched. So we are appealing to Americans across the country of all political persuasions to come together help us raise the money, make a donation that will be matched to make this dream of telling the story of the American Revolution, to inspiring a gener our, our current generation with the story of the our original greatest generation to make this dream a reality. What's the best way for them to get involved? Go to our website. It's the AmericanRevolutionCenter.org. Um, well, uh, Michael and uh, Alex, thanks so much for coming by uh, as we are on the uh, eve of the, our 236th birthday. I hope that the Museum of the American Revolution will help us understand our history for another 236 years. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. Polyoptics.